Hello, my friends. Today, we're talking to Stephen, editor at large at Wired, and we discuss Stephen's writing on the beginnings of tech giants such as Facebook and Google, how Mark Zuckerberg's dream became the Facebook we know today, and why journalism has changed so drastically since Stephen started in the late 70s. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. You've been writing for a long time. I was hoping you could quickly like summarize from the beginning of your interest in writing to where we are today. Sure. I went to grad school in literature and uh, realized I wasn't cut out to be a scholar. So I decided to become a journalist and started writing and was writing about all sorts of stuff. I was super interested in music. So I you know, wrote a lot about that. I interviewed Bruce Springsteen and Bob Marley and then moved to New York City with my girlfriend, who's now my wife. And in 1981, someone suggested I write a story about hackers, computer hackers. I'd never heard of them. I'd never touched the computer at that point, but I did a story for Rolling Stone. And I was fascinated by those people and that world. And I just wanted to write about it more and more. So for 40 years, I've been writing about that subject, which to me is just one big subject, which is how the digital transformation has changed everything we do and changed who humans are. So uh, to me, it's the big story of our time. And I'm really uh, been honored to have covered it from the front lines. And then how are you spending most of your time today? Well, today I uh, let in a couple guys to switch some air conditioners in my apartment. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, we you know, did some meetings and um, edited an interview I just did with Steve Case, uh, the oh, founder okay. of AOL. Um, yeah, was a new book out, and I try to keep up with all the sort of the OG of technology that are still active, and as well as try to meet new people who are just raw startups and you know and see what they're doing. So I'm lucky enough at Wired to be able to cover the whole of what we do, which is um, everything from AI to who the next CEO of Amazon is, right? So, you know, so I, uh, I get to cover all that stuff, which is a, a lot of fun. And now that we're traveling again, I get to, you know, hit the road again. So it, it's really been great because I get a lot of freedom there to just cover the waterfront of what Wired does. And during the pandemic, I talked to epidemi- epidemiologists. So, you know, that was fun. I did a series of interviews with this guy named Larry Brilliant, who was the guy who helped eradicate smallpox. And he had amazing things to say about the COVID pandemic. And, you know, uh, we did a series of interviews. So you get to do all kinds of stuff. Technology really is the subject. It covers everything. It used to be a little backwater of journalism. And now it's the center stage. Yeah, I followed Steve Case for a little bit. I think he had a book called The Third Wave or something yeah, like that. Exactly. I interviewed him for that. He reminded me. We talked yeah. a lot when I interviewed him for The Third Wave. In the late 90s, I wrote a story about AOL and also the other online services at the time, like Prodigy and CompuServe, if you remember those. And the title of the column was for Newsweek was Dead Men Walking. 
And I talked about how the internet was ending that era where we would subscribe to a service and that would be how we'd get our email. I said, the internet is going to blow that up. And if you were a business, you know, you weren't going to contract with AOL to run your business. It would be on the internet. And Steve Case hated that column when it came out. And because AOL, you know, thrived for a few years afterwards, did that big merger, he always used to say, well, Levy was wrong, but ultimately that was right. So when we, I interviewed him for the third wave, like maybe six or seven years ago, we went over those grounds. And uh, this time we just talked about whether the heartlands can supplant Silicon Valley. Oh, that's his Rise of the Rest tour? Or I Rise can't remember the, the name. Rest. Yeah, yep. he did a bus tour. And I thought, how weird for a billionaire is riding a bus. <laughs> <laughs> Warren Buffett, you can find him in the McDonald's parking lot. So <laughs> Yeah, that's true. You can find him at, uh, well, Dairy Queen, DQ. He's the DQ guy because he's got money in that. Yeah. So how did you, have you ever got to meet Warren Buffett, by the way? Yeah, I did. Um, I met him when, you know, I, I took a job at Newsweek in the mid-90s. And Buffett was on the Washington Post board at the time. Washington Post owned Newsweek at the time. So as a new employee covering this exciting area, sometimes they, for the board meetings, they'd bring up a couple of journalists. You know, once a year they did a board meeting at the Newsweek offices. So I went up and, and met him there. And I interviewed him a few times while covering Bill Gates. And he was friends with uh, Kay Graham who was the publisher at the time, the owner at the time of the Washington Post organization. So I met him several times, a fascinating guy. About how many of these interesting people do you meet become people that are in your life forever and you're like communicate with them regularly? Ratio is probably pretty low because I talk to a lot of people, but there's like a bunch of them. Um, You know, like Bill Gates, I've been interviewing since... The early 80s. And, you know, before he died, Steve Jobs, I interviewed many, many times. You know, it was a professional relationship. And yeah. It was a relationship. I went to the his memorial service. Other people sometimes become actually like friends that you kind of hang out with all the time. The day that I first saw the Macintosh, I was covering it for Rolling Stone. I got in before the Macintosh launched. So this is late 1983. That day, I met not only Steve Jobs... But the people who did the Macintosh, the Macintosh team, uh, guys like Andy Hertzfeld, the great hacker, um, Bill Atkinson, Susan Kerr, the artist, uh, Joanna Hoffman, who was the marketing person. And those people, we hit it off and they became my friends ever since. We watched our kids grow up together. Oh, yeah. So I was, the reason why I was asking is selfishly. So I've done, I think, 530 interviews. Wow. And I'd say maybe like one out of 50, I end up, they like become a part of my life and text each other pictures of our kids and, and things like that. So that's why I was curious because you've met so many people. Yeah, usually for every book, there's a couple people who you wind up getting a connection with. You know, I did a book about Google and I connected with this guy who was a, one of the VPs, Bradley Horowitz, and we became good friends. I just went to his wife's birthday party. And what was the Google book about? It was called In the Plex. Uh, it was what I tried to do is the definitive story of Google up to the minute where uh, Eric Schmidt resigned and Larry Page uh, took over again. And I think I tried to nail what made Google Google and spent endless time there, talked to hundreds of people and spent time in China. A big part of the book 
was about Google's China experiment because uh, to me, that was sort of like the moral test of Google at the time. And so what's the one big takeaway from, from that book? Well, is the struggle to have these incredibly innovative founders who put a stake in the ground. They said, we are not a conventional company. And the struggle of becoming a giant company while being rebels, while being disruptors, right? At the time I published the book in 2011, they were still in that game. I'd say another decade later, Google is by many, many accounts, a much more conventional company. You know, uh, the founders aren't there anymore. The guy running it was a terrific guy, super smart guy, but he isn't out on the edge the way Larry and Sergey were. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, I have a, like, my personal investment philosophy is I focus on companies where the founders are actively involved in the company. Because I've seen what happens when they leave and then a board takes over or a private equity firm. It's just, it's just not the same. How, how's your meta investment doing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, can you, can you text Mark for me? <laughs> so how did you, how did that project even come up? The Facebook project? So I've been covering Facebook since pretty early on. I met Mark in 2006, or early in 2006, and wrote a Newsweek cover about them the year afterwards, and wrote a lot about when I went off the wire in 2008, and didn't think I'd write a book. But then one day, I think it was 2015, the end of the summer, Mark posted that a billion people had been on Facebook, that platform, in the past 24 hours, right? You know, not just like monthly users, but a billion people that day. And I thought, that has never happened in all of human history, to have such a huge percentage of humanity in, in this network where anyone could communicate with anyone else. And it was, you know, something I felt I had to write this book. So then I, and I really wanted to get deep cooperation. So it took me a year to get all those ducks in line. And literally a year to the day after Mark made that post, I was on a plane to Nigeria to see Mark go to Africa for the first time and begin the research on that book. And I, I interviewed him like nine times during the course of the book. What's he like? You know, in some ways, what you see is what you get. He is, I think he wants to make interviews work. <laughs> But, uh, you know, he's, he, something's kind of literal. He does have a sense of humor, but it, it's super dry. You really have to spend time with him before he gets loose enough to share more things, right? You know, he, he's very defensive. He's, it's, um, you could see in the people who are at the top of the hierarchy at Meta, which is the name for what used to be Facebook, there's people who have been there for you know, almost 20 years now, you know, he has to know you really well to trust you. And he really values uh, people who stick around. And some of those people, you know, a lot of people have left, but the ones, Chris Cox, who's the head of product, Andrew Bosworth, Boz, who joined the company in, you know, 2005, I think. Naomi Glade, other people from the, you know, 2007, 2008, um, those are the people who were helping him run the country, who he really knows, company, uh, it's like a country, uh, who he right? really knows and trusts. 
It's bigger than some countries. Well, it is. Yeah, it, it, uh, it's a little smaller than it used to be but in terms of uh, market cap, but it is a, a, a giant country in terms of population. Yeah, it's probably um, the most uh, more population on Meta than any country in the world. There's no country that has three billion people. Yeah. Absolutely. And financially, I'm sure it's bigger than some of those small countries. The world's a very, very big place. I don't want to cover all the points in the book because people need to go buy the book, right? And what's the title so we can direct people now? It's called Facebook, The Inside Story. Excellent. And then what was the the one thing that caught my eye from it was there was something that Mark originally, initially intended for it to be. And then it's there's what actually came about? What's the differences? What was he originally intending for it and what did it become? So the idea was, and the mission statement was, to connect the world. When Mark started it, he was connecting Harvard and then went to colleges, right? You know, and he portrays it as saying, oh, he just did this thing in the dorm room and thought, you know, how it worked at Harvard. But he was ambitious. Um, Before the month was out, where he launched Facebook, and it was February, the shortest month, he launched it at Columbia and, you know, sort of took over other countries. He's like a big risk fan. So he looked at the college campuses around the U.S. and later the world like a risk game where you'd move into one and sometimes there'd be competition. You'd knock off that person. And then, uh, weirdly, the first one campus besides Harvard, where he started it, uh, was Columbia, which actually had a competitor on on board. And he felt, well, let me take on this college where there's somebody already operating this sort of connecting Facebook-like system, this network. And if I can knock them off, then I'll be even stronger as I go from campus to campus and take over the world. He went to Silicon Valley after a few months, the first summer um, of Facebook, and met up with people who were very used to blitzscaling, as Reid Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, uh, says. Hoffman was an early investor and had this ambition of maybe we should connect everyone in the world. But he was just thinking of people connecting with each other and in like a network sharing your personal information, your personal experiences kind of way. He wasn't thinking of it as an entertainment medium where like influencers or, you know, people with like funny videos or whatever would get hundreds of thousands or millions of views. But when they determined that that could happen, uh, a process began where it became, you know, less and less of your friends and family and connections and more and more like, you know, let's hold these people here, keep their attention, get their information so we could sell personalized ads to them. And that sort of drove what the company was and what the platform was uh, until it is what it is now, where the company is focusing on TikTok-like little videos, which really have nothing to do with, you know, your grandmother's not making a TikTok video. Ah, speak for yourself. No. I just actually, I, I did an interview with the, the head of technology for the United States for TikTok. 
And I hadn't actually used TikTok. And when preparing for that interview, I had my team like show me what TikTok is. And we did a group call right here in this office. And I put my phone up. They showed me how to get involved in everything. And I got it. But I'll tell you what, boy, did that thing give me a headache. Hmm. You know, I'm on, you know, Instagram and I read online. I subscribe to a couple different journalists I enjoy, but just the the quickness of the videos and it just was it was not my style. It's just not my thing. Really? You know, so you didn't get sucked in. You didn't go down the rabbit hole. No, in fact, I spent three separate sessions trying to get into it. Hmm. I'm trying to teach the algorithm what I was interested in so it would give me you know, stuff that I would, I would like. And I just, I, I couldn't get into it. Now, YouTube shorts, however, they typically last about a minute or so. And that's really good. And I think it's so good because it's known me for 20 years, right? Mm. Versus TikTok knows me from the moment I register. So they were really good at being able to serve me content that I would like. That's interesting. I find, you know, uh, TikTok, you could look at it intending to spend, you know, maybe a couple of minutes waiting in line. And then, you know, after you're in line, I find you're still looking. It's a, it's a time sink that uh, I try not to fire it up too much because, you know, a half an hour is burned away in a second. Oh, yeah. What's your favorite social media platform? Well, I like Instagram a lot these days because my son is a photographer and he posts a lot on it. Oh, nice. You have grandkids on there too? No, no, no. I have uh, one kid and um, he hasn't spawned yet. Yeah. I just had my third last week, so. Really? Oh, yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It's crazy. But this, um, and I want to talk a little bit about this whole podcasting thing, because you've been around professionally since before the internet got popular and, and you watched it. For context, I'm 34. So like some of my earlier memories of the internet were the free CDs being everywhere at the grocery store. They'd put these like free AOL CDs everywhere. When you saw podcasting start to come up, what were your first thoughts? So, you know, I, I wrote a book about the iPod. And it was called The Perfect Thing. And the thing I loved about the iPod was how you could take your music collection and shuffle it, right? You know, you have, and it would be like your own radio station. So I liked the shuffle function so much that I wrote the book like a series of essays that you could shuffle. And we did four different versions of it determined by picking ping pong balls, you know, like out of a, a paper bag, you know, and, you know, the introduction was the same, but things were in different orders. I mean, I actually did four different versions of it. And one chapter was about podcasting because that's where, that's, you know, the pod and podcasting is named after the iPod. So it started off with this thing as delivered by RSS, right? You know, and you know, it was very much out of the blogging community. And interestingly, the guy who did Blogger, Evan Williams, started a company called Odeo, which was going to be a blogging company. But when Apple announced its podcasting app, he realized uh, he was going to get snowed under. So he shifted the company to an idea that one of his engineers came up with called Twitter. So that was the evolution of that. And I, I always thought it was a, you know, a great digital play on radio, right? Radio, no one ever had 
like a VCR for radio, right? You didn't, people didn't tape radio shows and keep them, but podcasting allowed you to asynchronously, you know, listen in on an interview like this, which was super valuable because, you know, all this great stuff happened on the radio that you actually literally had to be there to, you know, to consume. And of course, because these interviews were going to be accessible, uh, more people would submit to being interviewed and, you know, more creative people got in the interview business, you know, like you and, you know, another favorite podcast interviewers. So I'm, I'm actually super impressed at how that field has taken off and built, it on, you know, uh, you know to, to what it is today. I still think that uh, we're waiting for the greatest podcast app. I haven't seen it. I'm not satisfied with certainly not with Apple's podcasting app or the ones from the streaming services. So I think that's, a you know, I'm waiting for someone to crack the code of that. Me too. And I've seen Spotify has definitely taken a huge market share in the past two years because we've been doing this for five years. And, you know, we look at our stats all the time and it tells us which player people are listening through to the best of its ability. And we've just seen Spotify like crank up. Right. Well, I guess the, then the question is, when these platforms take over, so then it becomes a discovery issue, right? So they have also, a company like Spotify, they, you know, they bought these companies, right? So some of the content is content they own, like Joe Rogan or whatever. Um, and the question is, if I'm putting a podcast up on Spotify, how could I get attention when they have their own stuff up top, right? You know, and this is, you know, an issue that you were seeing all over tech, when you have these platforms, some of which the content is theirs, other content people promote from advertising. So if you don't have a lot of money to advertise and you're not owned by the platform, how do you get the steam to bring in the users? There's there's no nothing like um you know like a neutral search engine to find what you want. Just relentless work and bringing as much value as you possibly can to the audience, right? Right. Well, you know, if you if you crack that, that that that's great because it really is a terrific hump to get over to get the initial audience. Then maybe you'll get word of mouth and people, you know, sharing. Hey, here's a great podcast. We market this thing like crazy too. So we'll take like a clip of you saying something interesting and we'll show it to people. We'll micro target on the different platforms. People who are interested in books and technology so that when they see you they're like you know it's you're connected to their interest and then there'll be a link to continue listening to the rest of the show and so do you do paid advertising yeah so the evolution of this i'll give you like the 60 second backstory right software engineer for 17 years uh, built systems sold them so i'd build small teams or teams of teams and do that uh, had some success in real estate software my mom passed away and I got to be there like in the room. And that was like a huge defining moment for me because it made me realize how finite life is. Mm. And so I had this idea to write this book about sharing my knowledge and I had it for years. And so I, I made that the decision. I was like, I'm going to write that book now. So I immediately started working on it. It took me about a year and it was called Modern CTO. And it was simply saying like, hey, I don't know everything, but here's what I did and here's my experience and here's the issues I learned along the way and, you know, write me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. And before I put it out, I didn't want to get like 
flamed, you know, on the internet or, <laughs> or yelled at. So I started sending copies of it to other CTOs and I said, Hey, can we jump on a call? And that turned into the podcast. Two years, it was just like an expensive hobby. In year three, uh, we were so booked up, like we were booked up six months in advance and a, a company, I can't remember who was our first customer, but they came to us and they said, we can't wait six months. We have a product launch and we need to get it out to your audience now. And I was like, all right, well, if you pay the production cost, like I'll get another producer and I'll have them come in and I'll have them produce up the episode and all the content and the deliverables and all that. And they're like, yeah, we have a budget for that. I go, really? They're like, yeah. I was like, well, how much are your budgets for that? So for me, I was doing it because I wanted to meet interesting people and, and talk to people about the area that I spent most of my career in. And I was hoping that it would land me like VP of engineering at Uber or like, you know, something cool through relationships. I didn't expect this to become the business. And then we started making podcasts for other companies and that grew the business even farther. So it's been a pleasant surprise, but I'm no longer writing software anymore. <laughs> well, congratulations. No, that's great. You know, that shows... You know, look, I never thought I'd be writing about technology. When I went to college in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, we thought the computers were part of the war machine. They were dehumanizing people, right? And when I started meeting the hackers, I realized that it was the opposite. These people were using it to, you know, augment what's creative about humans. You know, the narrative of the industry I cover has changed. You know, some of that optimism you know, proved um, to be, let's say, overhyped. And, you know, uh, we didn't see the dark side of it. You know, uh, certainly those days were exciting. You know, when I was in college, I idolized Rolling Stone. I, I thought, you know, that what was happening in music was more exciting than anything. I thought maybe I'll be a rock critic. But by the time I became a journalist in the mid-70s, even though I started writing about music, I didn't feel that it was like the center of the culture anymore. You know, not like it was in like the, the late 60s when, you know, Jimi Hendrix was playing and, you know, Dylan was doing his stuff and, you know, and the music was really changing the culture. But in the early 80s, I sensed that computers were doing that. And that was the exciting thing. So even though I wound up writing for Rolling Stone in the 1980s, it wasn't until the early 90s. When I joined, started started writing, I wasn't working full-time then, but started writing for Wired, which was going to be the rolling stone of technology, did that connect. And I realized that, you know, um, I was uh, on the equivalent of uh, the Led Zeppelin plane in the culture by writing about Steve Jobs and, and Bill Gates and AI and things like that. Oh, yeah. Wired is like the, it's the brand, right? It's the highest value tech publication brand that I can think. And there's definitely more modern ones, but there's that aspect of trust where you've been watching the brand since the moment you you started. Yeah. And I think that's valuable. Yeah, yeah. When Kevin Kelly, who was the first executive editor, asked me, he said, uh, I'd like you to write you know, this uh, story for us. You know, it'll be the, the cover of the second issue. And I thought for a minute, I'd say, gee, you know, I wonder... If I'm going to get my expenses back because I'm not sure there's going to be a second issue. <laughs> That's funny. Little I know that I'd be I'd be writing for Wired when we're about to celebrate our 30th anniversary. And what is your your title? I read it. It's editor at large. I'm not an editor. I'm just a writer, but I am at large. I'll write about anything, right? That's what at large means. Yes. Oh, okay. Cool. See, I'm learning. See, and 
how has journalism changed? Because obviously that's something that sounds like 101 stuff that I didn't know, I just learned. And I'm just a very curious person. So when I got into it, I just wanted to know information. I never like claimed I was a journalist. And as things progressed, I needed it to stay more interesting for me. So I started venturing out into different technologies and, and questions, things like that. I wouldn't say I consider myself a journalist because I think that I haven't put in my time like mm. educationally to, to, be, to have that title. But how has journalism itself changed from when you started in the 70s to today? Well, dramatically, I mean, I think that, I mean, basically what a journalist does a writer, you know, does, you know, can you do this in your podcast? You know, you research your guest, right? And you figure out, driven by your own curiosity, because you are the stand-in for the listener, you know, and when you're writing, you're the stand-in for the reader. What do people want to hear, right? What What is the story, right? So kind of talking to people, looking at research materials, going on site and seeing for yourself. These are the tools of journalism that are involved in the story, but everything else around it has changed. The distribution method, the headlines. You know, for in the early part of my career, forget, you know, the tools I used to produce a story, but 100%, everything you wrote was within the covers of like a magazine or a newspaper, right? And the only people who read it were people who plunked down their quarters to read that hunk of paper, right? Which they'd turn the page and they'd read it, right? Um, and you weren't concerned about the numbers. You know, the, the, the publisher would figure out how many copies to print, but who read it among the buyers, you'd never know. And that wasn't really, you know, something you thought about. Obviously, some pieces were more popular than others, but other pieces were just, like, important to be there. And when you had a headline for a story, the assumption was the headline might draw you into the story that was on right underneath it, right? You know, you didn't have to explain yourself. So you think about a headline now, and stories now exist in, in isolation. You know, people don't. When they're online, they don't necessarily read the whole package. People don't go online and say, wow, even though you're a subscriber to Wired, you don't sit there and go to the Wired website and read one story, the next story, the next story, the next story. You know, you'll get clued to that, or maybe you'll go to the homepage and see something and then come back a couple days later and see something else. Maybe you'll even have an alert for a writer, you know, uh, that you like. But, you know, there's, um, many people encounter the stories, you know, in, in isolation. They'll say, oh, here's an interesting story. And you'll be drawn in by a headline, which sort of has to explain itself. So I took a couple of years off from Wired in 2014 and joined Medium, you know, okay. founded by Evan Williams, the guy I mentioned earlier that did ODO and Twitter. And I started a publication called Back Channel. And we basically did a story a day. And I learned that certain stories, which could be great in the context of a publication, like a really interesting like thought piece, an essay, right, was really tough for us to put across if we were just doing one story a day, because each story had to claw its way into people's attention, right? So, I mean, I remember I tried to find some of the best young writers 
who I could find. One was a writer, a woman named uh, Casey Sepp. Fantastic writer, but you know the thoughtful pieces she wrote weren't didn't fit for us, right? Now she's a you know a great writer for the New Yorker, right? You know where you know where it is a natural fit, and she works within the context of that. She wrote a wonderful book about the after effects of To Kill a Mockingbird, right? Harper Lake. So it it, so it changes the content and what content gets rewarded in, in a certain case. There's certain kinds of stories that once you could do in the context of this publication that you purchased, that probably aren't going to get as much attention now. So suddenly the content changes of journalism. And, you know, uh, if you're going to fund expensive investigative reporting, you have to have almost a different kind of business plan to go because you might spend six months on a story and you release it and, you know, uh, the same day you'll release a story that was written in two hours, you know, based on, you know, something whimsical. And that two-hour story might draw more than the solid investigative painstaking work you did to expose a scandal. Yeah, it's, it's a super strange thing that's happened? Do you think that there's a way out? You know, publications like Wired and The New Yorker and The New York Times, you know, have, have sort of figured out a way to deliver that in-depth journalism and build an audience that wants to see it. Right? You, you can't, you know, there's still an argument for, you know, buying into the whole package. Yes. Well, me personally, I like long form content. Yeah, well, that's that, that's my heart, you know, and that's yeah. what, well, that, that, that's what I love to do, and I love that you could do it in in Wired, and sometimes it'll be in print, and sometimes you know, sometimes not, but you know, I could still write these seven thousand word stories that take months to do and travel for it, and you know, deliver you know, something that is worth reading that day and a year later. What writers are you reading in technology? Hmm. You know, there's a great book uh, behind me, uh, John Markoff, who is a terrific writer for the New York Times for a long time, just published a book about Stuart Brand, uh, who is a pioneer in a lot of things, called Whole Earth, behind me here. That was great. Uh, you know, I think Taylor Lorenz, who writes for the Washington Post, you know, created this influencer beat, and she's, you know, very good. Lauren Good is a colleague at Wired, does fantastic work, and she's been doing writing some great features as well as doing gear stuff. So the field is just brimming with great writers. And, you know, my former colleague at Newsweek, Brad Stone, has written wonderful things about Amazon. Is there any books about how to interview people well that aren't like, not like job interviews, like journalistic interviews? You know, that's a, a great question. It just so happens... Uh, Wired, we do this thing called Skillshare, where we do internal presentations for the staff to share art techniques and things like that. So I'm literally doing one on interviewing. <laughs> I went to search for a book on this because after the podcast started making money, I thought, well, I need to like put some of that money behind my education and like learn how to become a better podcast host. And And I went to search and I found tons of books about how to interview like job interviews that dominated the search results when you when you start searching for this type of book and then i was looking for like you know radio host interviews or like different types of interviews the closest thing i found was a very short mention about it in one of howard stern's books 
We, he's a master interviewer. You know, I mean, yeah. some of the great interviewers, Howard Stern, Mark Maron. You know, it's interesting. Joe Rogan is, you know, he's been criticized a lot. I've been critical of some of some stuff he's done. But I think he's, you know, he's a very good interviewer because he, he, he draws out what he's curious about. But you're right. I don't know. I can't think of any great book. You know, I saw on the plane the other day, um, they, uh, they had some master class things just in the, the seat of the plane ahead of me. And Malcolm Gladwell did a segment in his thing about interviewing. And a couple of things that he said were things that I had already written down that I was going to share with Wired. And one of them is, you know, just don't be afraid to ask dumb questions, right? You know, and don't pretend. The, the biggest sin you could do in interviewing, there's a few of them, but one is to pretend you know something when you don't, right? If someone like gives an abbreviation and you figure, well, I don't want to look dumb. I'm not going to ask what that means or uses, you know, refers to something that the person thinks maybe seems to think you should know. If you don't know it, just say, what is that? Because chances are your listener might not know it either, right? And the other thing is, and, you know, I, I think you do this already, I can tell, is just to ask, what do people really want to hear, Right. And to be direct, and sometimes if it's an embarrassing question, I find the best thing to do is ask it directly. Don't get all mealy mouth and say, well, gee, you know, my editor says I should ask this or, you know, or some people say that just ask directly. You know, I mean, what when in, in the Steve Case interview, one thing that I wanted to ask him about was he, you know, the, he has this, this fund that he started um, a few years ago. Uh, $150 million fund to invest in these companies. And the guy he picked to run the fund was J.D. Vance, who had just written the Hillbilly Elegy and was a hot commodity and was known as a person who brings people together. And that's what Steve really wanted. Steve is very much into bringing all sides together and, you know, and people not being polarized. And I said to Steve, I said, listen, you know, you pick this guy to, to do this, but um, I look at the index of your book. You don't mention the guy once. You know, did he turn out to be something that you felt, you know, he wasn't when he, he picked him? And, you know, he gave me an answer. And then I went back to him on that. I said, well, wait a minute. You know, do you think he snookered you? And that was what I was thinking. I didn't want to put it in any other more delicate way. And, you know, he said, well, I don't know if I use that word, but, you know, but just asking things directly. You know, I also asked them and said, what, what were the returns on the fund? What, you know, can, he didn't share the number, but ask directly. Yeah, I think that is, is fantastic advice. Some I wish I would have heard <laughs> <laughs> earlier. But, yeah, I, I, I found that people are not shy to share their assessment of you as an interviewer. <laughs> so going around and getting to do, well, once the podcast started to get popular, I started to get invited to conferences and I'd go give a talk and then people would come up to me after and, and share different things. And so I would sort of figure out things that I was doing that people liked or, yeah. or whatnot. And ultimately what it came down to was just being super self-aware of who I am and and just being that person because I just happened, I didn't choose this genetically. I'm a curious person. And so as long as I'm asking questions and then making sure that I am thinking about what is the audience wanting to hear about? What's the next thing that they, they should hear about? Because sometimes I'll get excited with the next question I want to know about. And I have to remind myself, okay, we, we need to make sure we finish this line because it's somewhat hard to go back to a line of questioning. 
Well, also, I mean, it's important, you know, to both prepare and have a lot of questions you want to ask, but also to listen. Because, you know, during the course of an interview, the subject is probably going to say something which you haven't thought of. And it's a really interesting path to follow. So, you know, you can't just be thinking, you know, about your next question. But, you know, and this is particularly important in podcasts like you do or interviews on stage, which I've done a number of them. Like I've interviewed, you know, Jeff Bezos and Sundar Pichai and just like any number of uh, people on, on stage. And a podcast is like that. We, you know, when you interview someone, you know, just with your tape recorder for a story, you know, you could just like jump anywhere and you could bumble and, you know, it really doesn't matter. But when you're doing this where people are going to hear the conversation, you know, it's important to listen, to pick up, because quite often your subject's going to say something that you want to follow. Um, I've interviewed Bill Gates a lot of times. And... Quite often, he'll say something that, you know, that sort of opens up a really interesting path. And so you don't want to fall into a trap where you say, well, I've only got a half an hour with Bill Gates. I want to hit these points, right? So I'm thinking, you know, when's, when's the next question? So this will be going on about something. And, you know, the question is, what, what, why is he talking about this so much? What, what is it about that compels him? And then you kind of like zero in on that. And, um, and I find some of the best questions you ask are either tell me more or why. And I, I think that it would be great if you were to uh, like record it and publish it. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe send it to me privately or something. Yeah. With Gates, I always try to ask him a question that he's never been asked before in every interview. Oh, okay. That's a good one. You know, I like, like for instance, once I, I saw in his, his website, he mentioned a lot of books he's read. And, you know, and one was like um, Catcher in the Rye. So I asked him if he identified with Holden Caulfield. <laughs> what did he say? Well, he had a great answer. He said, well, I'm not quite like Holden, but I, I'd love to see the ducks at Central Park. And I mean, he, he like would totally a great recall the book. And we like riffed on that for a couple of minutes. It, it, was, it was really interesting. Most memorable interview you've done? Well, actually, before I, I interviewed Bob Marley. Nice. And that was unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> My first Steve Jobs interview was, was great. It was, you know, when the Macintosh was coming out. You know, and he just hit me with a force of his personality. That that that, that, that was that was great. And, uh, you know, sometimes when you're interviewing someone, I love it when you're interviewing someone about something important, and maybe the person has not been interviewed a lot before. So some of the early hackers I interviewed from MIT, those were super exciting because I realized when I was doing the book that this was like the font of computer culture. It was like all started there. The Mesopotamia of computer culture was in, you know, Building 20 at MIT with the Model Railroad Club and then the AI lab. And these guys had never talked to a journalist before. It was like kind of like going down, you know, like the river and finding this tribe that, you know, hadn't been contacted before. They were wary of talking to a journalist on one hand, but on the other hand, they were open, you know, they felt, well, I guess someone should tell the story, even though this guy doesn't seem too technical or whatever, but he's asking me. And, you know, you 
And and it was just fascinating as they unfolded the story, which turned out to be so significant. Uh, Final question as we wrap up. You inspired me to ask you a question that you've never been asked before. So here goes. You finish your interview today. AC is all working good. You decide to go for a drive. You get in your car. You're driving down the street and you're at a stoplight and pulls up next to you, rolls down his window. It's Elon Musk. Okay, he's right next to you at the stoplight. And he's like, hey, Steven, come check out my new uh, helicopter. And so you go to his house and he's got the helicopter and he shows it to you. And then he says, I want to show you something else as well. And he's got a time machine behind a curtain. And the way this time machine works is you get to go back. It's specifically 100% dialed into the moment after your Bob Marley interview. Okay, and you get to tell yourself, something for 30 seconds. Get 30 seconds of advice to talk to yourself in that moment of time and that'll, that'll help you for the rest of your life. What, what would you tell your past self? Make a copy, an extra copy of the tape. <laughs> <laughs> Did you lose your Bob Marley interview? I didn't lose it, but my battery was low and when I played it back, it was like... <laughs> 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 oh, man. Did, were you able to publish the interview and, and get it all taken care of? I did write the story. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I hand transcripted it. You know, <laughs> yeah. but uh, I actually, I actually, I can't. I have, and the, if I had an extra copy, I'd know where the tape is. I never didn't throw it out, but if I had it now, um, if I find, ever find it, I could, you know, put it up in on you know audio software and speed it up. There you go. Well, this is, this has been fascinating, Stephen. I really appreciate you coming and hanging out with us. So tell me about your newsletter. I do a newsletter every week. It's for subscribers only. It's called Plain Text. Um, if you go through the link, you can get a year of Wired, including my newsletter, the print version, and Unlimited Web for $5 if you follow this link. Send it to me. I'm, I'll be your next subscriber, my friend. And oh, we made a podcast. How do you feel? My pleasure, Joel. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.